and welcome to She's the Boss Chats. I'm your host, Jules Brooke, and in the show, I interview amazing women and female founders about what it is that they're doing and why they're doing it. It's all about us lifting up the women around us. Teresa Sperti, I'm so excited to have you on She's the Boss Chats. Thank you so much for agreeing to be my guest. Thank you very much for having me. (laughs) My absolute pleasure, and I can't wait to hear your story. So let's start off with what you're doing now. Do you want to say, tell everybody what you're doing now and why you're doing it? (laughs) Sure. Uh, What am I doing now? So about 20 months ago, I launched um, a new business called Arctic Fox, and Arctic Fox is an advisory and training organization that operates within the digital and marketing transformation space. Uh, Why am I doing it? Uh, I I spent 20 years of my career in corporate uh, working for a number of really large brands but also a number of smaller organisations. And as I rose um, through the ranks and and, um, found myself in in a chief marketing officer position, I found that, you know, we're operating in a world where, there is a lot of change and disruption and a lot of the challenges are very new. And I had a really strong background in digital and data, have been in that industry for 15 years, and I was finding that role particularly tough. And I thought that if I've got the skills and experience of finding the role really challenging, then I can't imagine what it's like for those that maybe don't, don't have any have idea a, at all. <laughs> yeah, or don't have a, a modern marketing skill set or don't know how to how to effectively leverage digital in a changing world as a business leader. And so I thought that um, after 20 years, I always wanted to, to run my own business. And, and so here I am um, working with, with an array of different leaders in, in larger and smaller businesses to help them try and make sense of, of the digital world and um, what it means for their business. Oh, I love it. And I'm and and your timing, of course, for anyone that's listening, we're now at the beginning of 2021. So 20 months ago was pretty much just before the lockdown, I'm guessing. Uh yeah, it was. I probably started about six, seven months before the lockdown. Uh so probably, you know, there are some people that obviously started their businesses right in lockdown. I had a little bit of a head start, but definitely um Challenging. Last year was a challenge for everyone, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and how do you build relationships with people when uh, you moved into a into a um, a virtual world in in the way that you need to connect and engage with people? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no. Well, it's been a, it's been an interesting year, that is for sure. All right. So, was there um, what was the reason why you decided to finally jump into running your own business? Because obviously I'm a huge champion of women starting their businesses, but often there's something that happens that just tips you over and goes, right, that's what I'm going to do. So I call it a light bulb moment, but was there something that happened that made you go, God, I've got to go and help these people? Uh Look, I think there's a few reasons. So I'd always said that before the age of 40, I wanted to start my own business. My I would say I come from a bit of an entrepreneurial family. Um, my dad's always owned his own businesses. Uh, my auntie's always owned her own businesses. Um, and so growing up, I was kind of surrounded by that. So I always wanted to, to do my own thing at some point. Yeah. Um, I would say that after kind of 20 years in 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 
largely in larger corporates, I would say there's a fair bit of burnout. Um, yeah. <laughs> particularly when you're leading transformation and leading in, in change environments, which is a lot of what I was doing for the last seven years. Um, change is hard and people fear it and you're often working against the grain um, of the organisation and that takes a personal toll. Um, and so that definitely um, I'd kind of hit my um, limit, I think, um, in terms so there wasn't, of... So there wasn't sort of like a, a particular meeting or something that you just went, no, nah, that's it? Not it really. It was more gradual. I think so. And, and I, you know, I had some personal health issues at the time and, and kind of thought, you know, the culmination of things, it's time for me to step away and give this a shot. And, you know, <laughs> here I am uh, 20 months later and, you know, Truth be told, like everyone, I'm still figuring it out. The, yeah. The, um, I mean, a lot of people who start their own business feel like they need to, I think, put on a front at times and and um, portray that they've got it all figured out. And, you know, we've got a clear path and, and some clear direction, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't change and pivot based on what you're learning along the way. And, you know, there's some parts of my business that I probably still haven't fully figured out and that's okay. Well, if it makes you feel any better, I've been doing it for 20 years and there's still things I haven't figured out. So you <laughs> you're ahead of me, that's for sure. All right. Now, I want to hear you. <laughs> oh, you'll get there. I have no doubt about it at all. So let's, let's go right the way back to when you were a little girl. You were saying you had an entrepreneurial father and aunt. Sure. Were, yeah. you, were you in a big family, small family? Did you grow up in Melbourne? How did it all yeah. start off? Uh, so... I grew up in an Italian family. I'm Italian, um, yeah. of Italian descent, and um, I am not. I'm one of three children. So, and I'm the middle child. Do I have middle child syndrome? I don't know. I don't think so. Um, spoken like a true middle child. I was just going to say that. <laughs> As an eldest child, I look at all the middle children. And go, you got it easy. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but my mum was one of nine. And wow, that's yeah. huge. Yeah, and so if I look at my, you know, on on my mum's side, I've got something like twenty seven cousins. Um, wow, <laughs> which is really nice, and they're all having kids now, and and so I've actually lost count of of how many is part of the family on that side. Um, and dad was one of four, so surrounded by a lot of aunties and uncles. Um, nice. Yeah. Okay, and so. Um... When you were at school, what you know, what did you want to be when you grew up, and and what were you, what was school like for you? Ah, uh, that's an interesting one. So <laughs> I still think back to um, when I was in primary school, and I, I distinctly remember going on a walk with my mum and her friend, and I was telling them how I wanted to do three different jobs. So I wanted to be a pharmacist, I wanted to be a real estate agent, and I wanted to be an accountant. <laughs> Right, an accountant. Was, yeah. Well, I'm actually um, quite financially minded, so right. I studied finance and marketing. So, um, 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 yeah, people don't necessarily expect that of me, but yeah. So, and I decided in my own mind that I was going to do all of these roles part time. Right. Uh, which is interesting. So, um, obviously, I didn't go down that path. In, to be fair, though, when I when I graduated, I did. I was going to go into real estate, so I um, I was very close to signing on to be a real estate agent. Um, okay, which I think was partly probably 
more my dad's vision for me rather than my own. Uh, right. But then, I know. Uh, as as a mum now, I look at my sons and I go, you know, if you did real estate, you know, you'd set yourself up well yeah. for life and get that house. So I can understand where your dad was coming <laughs> from. I still love real estate, but um, but probably more as a kind of spectator and, and whatever <laughs> rather than as a career. Right. So you nearly signed up, but you didn't. So what did you do instead? Well, I'd started my marketing career and I'd done one role. Um, I, I was in a role and that's when I was a little bit at, at a fork in the road. And yeah. so I went to try real estate and then decided, no, not for me and, and continued on my path of my marketing career. Um, so, so, what was the, so what was the first job then? First job, I was at Ford Motor Company. Um, wow, that's a big that's a big company to go for your first job. Yeah, so I started uni, um, and they do what's called a sandwich year, where you go out into industry, learn on the uh, okay. job, and you're supposed to go back to uni full time. And and they asked me to stay on, uh, and so I finished my degree part time. I was living in Melbourne, out of home at the time, so for me, right. income was a good thing. Um, yeah, my my family's all from kind of past Macedon. Um, so, so I moved to Melbourne and, um, and I was secured the job forward as this events coordinator. And then after the 12 months, they said, can you stay on? And so I did and, and finished my studies part time. Okay. And so what made you leave Ford and where did you go next? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think I'd been at Ford for three years and Events I really, really enjoyed. I mean, I got to travel around Australia um, with the V8 supercars and, you know, go to probably every event you can think of. Can I ask, are, are you into cars? Well, I mean, was this kind of a passion of yours or, oh, or not? I'm not, I'm not really in, massively into cars, but at the time it was kind of cool. I was, you know, 18, 19 years old, being able to travel around. Um, yeah. You know, and I, I'd met all the drivers and, you know, for an 18 or 19-year-old, it was a pretty cool job. Um, but I knew events probably wasn't for me longer term. Uh, right. Events is very process-driven and, um, you know, you kind of follow the same process. Yeah, it's highly so, tactical really, isn't it? Yeah, and so I, I realised fairly quickly from a career point of view that I probably wasn't going to get the challenge that I wanted. Uh, and so. You know, after three years, I secured a, a role at Daimler Chrysler, um, which was kind of when Mercedes and, and uh, Chrysler had joined forces for a period of time. And and so I went there um, as a marketing coordinator and, and spent three years there. Um, right, great. And then what, what was next and what was going on in your head at that stage? Like were you kind of like now – I know I want to do marketing, so I'm going to start mm. following this mm. career and see where I can where it can take me. Or were you more haphazard than that? It's an interesting one. When you look back, you you think the choices that you make really do in those early years as a marketer or in any career, I think, do really determine where which pathways you're going to take. Um, I had a great manager at um, Daimler Chrysler, and I think. Um, you know, I learned a lot from her uh, during the years that she was here. She was a lovely German lady <laughs> uh, who moved back to Germany. But she, um, but but I felt, you know, that was for me where I first fell in love with data. Um, right. Why? Why? What, how, how did you use it, and and why, why back then? 
Oh, so my role back then was um, was very oriented around kind of customer relationship marketing. So it was all about how you use data in order to cross sell and upsell customers into new products, et cetera, et cetera. So okay. it's, it's interesting because the whole marketing industry talks about personalization and one-to-one marketing. Now, like it's a new thing. It's like it's not a new thing. It's been around for a long time. <laughs> uh, and I was doing it back in 2003. The thing is that the tools have changed now because um, so much has happened within the technology space over the past kind of 15 years. Uh, and so so I started there. Um, and spent three years there uh, building those skills and expertise. Which, um, and on the side, I was studying my master's. So by that time, I'd finished my undergraduate and went straight into doing my master's in marketing. And mm. so that was interesting, uh, juggling, you know, full-time work. And a master's, no less. I mean, it's not like you're doing a nice little, you know, BA. Um. <laughs> exactly, that's right. And so, um, you know, back then... You know, and still am. Um, back then, I was in, incredibly driven, though, and everything was about kind of work and career, and as it is, right in your twenties. Yes. And so, and over that time, I'd worked my way to leading a department. So, by the time I left Amber Chrysler, I was managing a team of three at the age of twenty-five um, in a wow. organization uh, from a marketing point of view. So. Uh, you know, great, great three years experience. Um, but by that time, I decided that I wanted to get out of the automotive industry. Right. I'd spent kind of six years in that industry and I wanted to work for a smaller organisation where there was a little bit of, you know, less politics. <laughs> oh, really? So it was quite political, the the early years for you? Oh, look, I, I just think larger organisations tend to be. You know, the larger right. the organisation, the more levels and layers that you need to move through. And I think, you know, early on in your career, uh, it's good to try a lot of different things. And and I decided at that point that maybe I wanted to try a, a smaller organisation, but didn't at that point know that I wanted to be um, in digital and have um, build strong I mean, expertise in digital. Uh, the industry back then, back in 2006, was really non-existent. I mean, I was going to say pretty pretty early days. I mean, Facebook wasn't around. The internet right. had only been around for ten years. That's right. Uh, it's it's kind of hard to for anyone to imagine if they weren't through there through those years how undigital it was. Yeah, and so I landed at a travel wholesaler, okay. uh, which is which makes a lot of sense when you think about it because travel was one of the first industries to be disrupted by um, the internet. Uh, obviously, you know, the traditional uh, chain, um, uh, what do you call supply chain of travel was being disintermediated, meaning that consumers could go online and, you know, book a hotel directly, whereas historically they buy through a, a travel agent who'd bought products through a wholesaler. Right. Um, who is dealing with the the end provider? So that that kind of that whole model was being tipped on its head, and the travel wholesaler that I went to work for, they wanted to build a direct to consumer channel, which was all about rather than selling through real estate and uh, travel, travel agents, agents. Yeah, uh, was to to sell direct to the, the public. Um, who was it? Who was it? Were you able to they say? Were, they were called. Yeah, no, that's fine. They were called Timber Holidays at the time, and then. Yeah. They got bought out by Cox and King, uh, 
many years later, and I don't think they're actually around anymore. I think uh, I think the the internet probably got the better of them. But, killed but, them. <laughs> so back in two thousand and six, when I joined that organisation, uh, it was basically looking at how do they build a, con- a direct to consumer model uh, and and stuff. That would have been exciting. It was. It was really exciting. Um, you know, building websites and um, starting to to leverage Google to drive traffic and and all of those skills I didn't have. So a lot of that I had to learn on the job and teach myself. I mean, again, it wasn't, you know, digital was so new in the industry. Um, it wasn't as if there were all of these kind of experts and gurus you could lean on and, and you know, a whole industry behind you that's that's driving training and upskilling in, the, in that area. So a lot of those early skills I taught myself and learned on the job. Right, which is, you know, classic for entrepreneurs as well. So you must have, in your own little way, <laughs> known what you were going to be doing. So so what did you do after that? How long did you stay there and, and where did you go to after that? Yeah, so I spent 18 months there and by that time um, I married, met, married my partner. So yeah. we been together for a few years by then and we were kind of 27 uh, you know, footloose and fancy free, and I'd missed oh, those heady days before children. <laughs> yeah, that's right. No responsibility, and I no. missed the whole gap year because I I was very focused. I went to uni. I secured the, you know, the um, the internship and went straight into work, and then went straight into my masters and and realised that oh, I actually haven't spent a lot of time just living. So. We packed up and moved overseas to London. Um, oh, wow, fantastic. <laughs> and we were, we were actually tossing up between Canada and London um, and, and decided probably to go the more travel route. Um, yeah. For Australians. So- which, which I have to say, if you're in digital marketing, they really, I think, in London are kind of streets ahead of any other country. They just switched on, they got it, um, and they took it very seriously early on. Absolutely. And I, you know, that was very fortunate time for me to move there because, again, I'd spent kind of 18 months here in, in digital and then moved to London in a market that was probably three to five years ahead of Australia. Yeah. Um, and so to, to be able to learn and develop skills over there was fantastic opportunity. I, I ended up being the head of international marketing for a job board. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, across, I think it was five different countries so we had job boards in germany france belgium the netherlands and the uk so there was a bit of international travel it was great to learn about different cultures um and how they engage and what drives them from a candidate point of view and a client point of view and and what was your hubby doing did he manage to secure a job as well he did he was a salesperson um, right he was he was actually working for car park a car park business which sounds highly uninteresting except when you think about the fact that there's no parking in the middle of London oh, and I, know. So, I'm, I ended up working for an ad agency there and they gave me a car and it was and, and you know I think this is probably really common in Europe but I'd never seen it before you drive in leave your car with them and they'd put it in this lift thing and take yeah. it up to the yeah. 15th yeah. floor you know yeah <laughs> on space so yeah yeah, so he he was selling car parks, which is really a captive market in the yeah. centre of London. Um, you know, and some of these car parks would be 
at the time, I mean, it was 10, 15 years ago, up to £10,000 a year. Yeah, um, and that amazing. was 10 years ago. So goodness knows how much they've been now. But, but yeah, so we spent uh, nearly just shy on two years in London. Mm-hmm. Uh, still Did you like travel travel a lot and, and take holidays? Oh, so <laughs> It's so good, isn't it, when you can just nip over to a different country for a weekend for, you know, 50 quid or 100 quid or something like that. It's amazing. It's so good. We, I think we, we took 15 trips in two years and, <laughs> you know, it's ironic to where we are today um, because I basically can't um, travel outside of Northcote at certain times <laughs> due to COVID. But we, uh, we got to the point where it wasn't um, the joy of travel wasn't like it was yeah. because we'd done, we, we were really spoiled. We got to travel all the time. And so kind of the novelty wore off a little bit. And I just look back on that and go, oh, wow, if only. If only we <laughs> I know, it's anyway. so funny where you start going, I don't want to be in a suitcase. I just want to stay home this weekend. And yeah. you think, gosh, yeah. you just don't have that experience in Australia in the same way of no, that don't. international travel on your doorstep. You don't. And I'm cheap, really cheap, glad cheap. I did it from a career point of view uh, because it was great for my career, but it was all so great. Um personally to be able to kind of experience different cultures and 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 just be part of that London community which is a melting pot of of different people we met some great people friends all over the world that we now have and still yeah, speak brilliant to. Mm. Fantastic. Okay, so then you decide to come home. I and I mean, I remember when I got back thinking I'm going to be able to say to people, I worked in London and they'll all go, wow, you must be amazing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so was it a bit like that for you? Did you come back and find that everyone wanted to employ you? Uh, I actually secured a job before I landed. Oh, well, there you so, go. <laughs> yeah, and that, that's probably typical me in that, I'm not a very patient person and um, I don't like um, like to have a little bit of a plan. So, yeah, I was in conversations before I came back and I ended up going to a small but growing organisation that was called realestateview.com.au. So oh, well, yes, grown huge now. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, not realestate.com, realestateview.com. No, but isn't Real Estate View still one of the app that you can go and look at all the houses? Yeah, I feel like I've got, it, yeah. I've got it on my phone. It's one of, because I love looking at real estate. There you go. <laughs> yeah, so I, um, so they were kind of number three in market, owned by the real estate institutes and looking right. to grow and take on the big guys in domain and, and realestate.com. Yeah. And so that was a really interesting time in my career. Um, it was a great, I mean, I really enjoyed my time there. It was a, a small, nimble operation. There was about 30 or 40 of us uh, uh, looking to kind of take on the big guys. The, the, the organisation was looking to raise capital, uh, so it was interesting to be involved in um, an experience like that. Yeah. Uh, and I spent three years there leading marketing technology and product so it was a really diverse role built a team of 11 or 12 by the time I'd finished and yeah and we achieved some really great things uh, but without funding the organization could go to the next level and so after three years I felt like I'd done all that I came to do and achieved all that I'd set out to achieve and so at that point I decided that 
uh, I'd try my hand at retail because I knew that, so by this stage, it was about 2012 and retailers were really starting to talk about digital. Um, and retail is a really interesting one because if you're not a retailer, they tend to overlook you from a, a yeah, recruitment point of view. Right. But I felt I had a unique skill set that would lend itself to me moving into that industry before the industry caught up and the talent within the industry caught up. So I went from an organisation that was 40 people into an organisation that was 110,000 people, which was Coles. I went to work for Coles right. um, in, um, in their, their liquor division. And that was a baptism of fire. <laughs> you go, you know, because I'd worked in larger organisations, but then I'd really spent six years in smaller organisations and, and to then make that leap into such a large organisation. Whilst I had the technical skills, I don't think I was ready from a an ability to, to lead change with a complex stakeholder group. Huge, and huge, huge, huge company. <clears throat> it's interesting that you chose retail though because last year I think with the pandemic was extremely interesting in terms of how many people in retail really hadn't embraced mm-hmm. the whole digital thing and yeah. the ones that had how well they did but yeah. the other ones yeah. scrambling around trying to start websites which they must have known about 10 years earlier but didn't well, do so well it's a really interesting one because I spent five years in retail and I would you know so so quite close to the industry and and even now we do a lot of work with retailers and I would say that in Australia, um, for a long time, in many sectors, not just retail, that really many were operating in an oligopoly. So there was only two or three competitors. And so yeah. there wasn't really a catalyst to drive the change. And uh, digital yeah, is one point. of those things that needs catalyst. It needs a reason to change. You need a reason to change. And I think that for many organisations in the retail space, um, COVID was that catalyst. Um Right, you know, and it and it shouldn't yeah, have taken true. that. There's no doubt that um, uh, you know, you, you see a number of retailers folding, and you know, for some of them, um, it's no doubt that they've they've they just haven't evolved and changed with with consumer behaviour. Um, there are a few that probably look at retail is a challenging industry. It's 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 thinner margins and and whatever, but there is definitely um. Uh, more that that retailers need to be doing to embrace embrace. Digital. Well, yeah, I mean, I especially look at those really big department stores, which you know, prior to the internet and online, it was the only place you could go where you could see lots of brands. But now I look at them and I'm like, God, you're dinosaurs! Like, mm. what aren't you? Why aren't mm. you? Why are they not turning into sort of the stores into the experience, and then everyone purchases online or something? Yeah. I don't know. But anyway, it's it's fascinating to watch. And as David Jones and Maya slowly <laughs> close stores one after another, you kind of go, God, yeah. really missed an opportunity there. Mm. But anyway, what role do they play in consumers' lives? I think you're right. The reality is, is the ability to kind of browse an array of different products and offerings, I can do that at the click of a button across several websites. So what is it that makes them unique and different? And I think, you know, and it's not just those brands. There are there are many that are yeah. trying to work through 
where do we play and how do we win in this changing market? And I would say Target's another classic example. Uh, historically, you know, that cheaper quality type offering, there was very few alternatives in market. But with some of the international brands coming in, where do they fit in the market and what role are they playing for consumers? And um, and then there's the digital piece. So, so I think, um, you know, no matter which industry you're in, whether it's retail or not, the market is changing and you have to change with it. Um, yeah. Um, and there's a saying that is that the, the rate of change is the slowest it will ever be, and um, I truly believe that. Um, that right. The change is only going to get more rapid. Wow, and I feel like it's been exponential the last few years anyway, so <laughs> God. God help us, you know, hold on, here we go. Um, okay, so after you, so so you were at Coles for, what did you say, three years? No, I was at Coles for a couple of years. Um, I had a, I had a, I had my son um, right. during that time, so went on maternity leave. And then um, once I'd kind of finalised maternity leave, I ended up at Officeworks. Right, Officeworks. I didn't know that. I used to have a range of envelopes in Officeworks and then they ripped me, ripped me off, went and, and and copied them overseas and deleted my range. So there you go. I, I won't go there. I, I don't know what happened. Um, so, yeah, so I, I spent three years at Officeworks leading um, as their head of CRM and digital marketing and um, it, was an, it was another interesting role leading a lot of change and kind of, innovation around digital and data and um it was it was a challenging role from a couple of points of view one I had a young son so he was makes I it hard eight months um when I came back to work and um I'll tell you a funny story in a minute and <laughs> um and I I'd inherited a team that wasn't really performing and so I had to rebuild that entire team I think that team was 14 or 15 people I can't remember off the top of my head. But that's hard to do, isn't it, when you have to let people really go? Hard and... To do. and my son was sick every second week. So Of course, because I presume he was in childcare and that's the beginning that's right. of catching that's right. everything that's going. Yeah. So you have the bum guilt and then you've got this big kind of responsibility and reforming and reshaping a team and trying to take executives on a journey and getting them to buy in um, to your direction because, again, I was brought in to, to drive change and to drive adoption of digital and data and those types of roles aren't really, um, you know, kind of maintaining the status quo. And no. I was also travelling three hours a day because Officeworks is on the other side of the city. So I remember one time I went to pick my son up from childcare. It was the first and last time I ever went because I was 20 minutes late and got an $80 fine. Ouch. Um, oh, my God. I hate the way they used to charge us by the minute for yeah, being by late. The minute, by the minute. But the story I wanted to tell you was one around um, females in the workplace. So uh, within my first week, one of my key stakeholders, I was introduced to him in, in the hallway, and I said to him, look, I'm, I work four days a week and five. I just wanted to let you know because I've got a young son. And his response to me was, oh, really? Okay, that's interesting. My wife stayed home to look after our kids. <laughs> what a surprise. And I was right. like, oh, that's really interesting. What's she doing now? Oh, she's really struggling to find a job because she's been out of the workplace for so long. I'm like, mm, interesting. And I went <laughs> off. And, and 
you know, it's and that was back in 2000 and it have been 14. Right. So not that long ago. I mean, it's, you know, six, seven years. Um, but, you know. Well, previous, I, I would say back in the 1950s in terms of the yes. comments that he was making <laughs> to you. But do you think when you're a first-time mum who's already got some guilt going back to work, you don't need that put upon you? No, you don't. Uh, but, um, you know, prevalent in the workplace. Mm. Okay, so uh, so do, I mean, how did you do that juggle, and w- what made you leave and move on to the next place? How did I do the juggle badly? <laughs> <laughs> I doubt it. I mean, we all think that, but you know, you look back in hindsight and go, it is the most difficult time. I know for me, I was like, I don't know whether I should just be at home, but we really needed mm. the money, you know. So you you're trapped. Yeah. So I I think a couple of things helped me. I mean the. From a professional point of view, achieved a lot in that role, and really mm. proud of of everything that we achieved, and and um, and 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 the change that we drove within the organisation. I built a really high performing team, so it was it was great, and I actually did really enjoy my time there. Uh, Officeworks, I think, is a really great organisation. Uh, how did I juggle it? Well, I think it's about in part working out what works for you. So I tried a lot of different things. So initially I was working four days. That didn't work because basically I was cramming five in four and working till 12 o'clock at night, um, which just means you're being underpaid. Um, And then – And also running yourself into the ground. I mean, those kind of hours are insane. That's right. And so – but the organisation was very supportive, so we adapted. I ended up doing kind of – a five-day week compressed into four and a half, which meant I still got a half day off to spend time with my son. Um, And I did one day from home, so that worked well. Uh, And I had a very supportive husband, which also worked well. I think that's a must. (laughs) Absolutely. You've got to both be in it together. Okay, Uh, so, oh, yeah, go on. on. And then the other thing is I actually had an executive coach. I think being I think the message here is not go and get an executive coach. It's that um, find an external party that you can lean on uh, that's a bit more independent to help you work through your thoughts um, because that was really, really helpful. And she helped me deal with a lot of the guilt um, that I was experiencing uh, and that therefore helped me at work and at home and holistically. Yeah. Great. Okay, so what made you want to leave and where did you go next? <laughs> Lots of roles, right? I've never stayed at a, at a, at a company for more than three years. So, um, yeah, but I think, that the, I think that that's kind of normal these days. It's <laughs> our parents' generation that um, loved the 25 years and the gold watch working for a company. I mean, everybody yeah. else, I think, you know, you, you need to grow and change. And as you say, you were working at the forefront of digital, <laughs> which does involve a lot of change and <laughs> absolutely stacks of companies need that help. So, And I, you know. I was very much a change agent and a builder, not a maintainer. So I right. often bought into organisations to build all the foundations and then, you know, it made natural sense in a lot of ways for me to hand that over then to somebody else because I, by that point, would get a little bit bored and go, mm-hmm. okay, what's next? Um, but also it's a very different leader who is – maintaining and evolving than one that is building um yes so then i went to world vision as their chief marketing product and data officer 
And what was that like? That must have I been mean, great organization. Nice, you know, I guess nice to know that you're helping all those people or was it not great? So yeah. great. So first time in not-for-profit and mm-hmm. um, that was a, you know, I, I think not-for-profit's one of those sectors that you should do once in your life um, and not necessarily at the end of your career. <laughs> um, uh, but Great experience on many, many different fronts. Um, I think personally to be able to to understand poverty um, mm. and understand what it takes to lift communities out of poverty is something that, you know, I'll never be, I'll never get the opportunity to learn about that again, if that makes sense. Like I, that, that um, is one of those life-changing experiences that I've been fortunate enough to see and, and be involved in. Um, I was able to travel to Cambodia and see the work. Right, and, great. And, yeah, and it really is transformational and it's interesting because we talk so much as in business about transformation and what it takes and there is so much you can learn from um, aid organisations that are working in the field and how they drive transformational change because that's what they do in communities. Um, right. I never thought of it that way but you're right. Yeah, of yeah. course. And a lot of that transformational change comes from knowledge knowledge transfer because a lot of these communities don't have the knowledge that we take for granted. So basic things like hygiene, they don't, they don't know you have to wash your hands after going to the toilet. They don't know that the water needs to be boiled um, and that leads to a whole lot of health issues. So, so the model for World Vision is not about just handing money to people. It is about teaching them skills to lift their community out of poverty and it's fascinating I mean that the all of the little kind of they teach a lot of skills to help people build businesses and it's amazing to see it I, I met a I think she was 80 or 70 year old woman who was running three different businesses it was phenomenal. yeah fantastic yeah so so that was amazing um the role itself was very much again a transformational role um uh, the organisation was going through a, a huge amount of change, led partly by the industry. Um, you know, there's a lot of change happening in the industry and the way that consumers want to donate. Um, and and it's highly, highly competitive. There's, I think the number is something like 54,000 not-for-profits operating in Australia. It's one of the most competitive industries I've ever operated within. Wow, I didn't, I had no idea. I wouldn't mm. have known there were so many. Yeah. Right. And, and that role, executive role, um, played out also at a global level. So I was involved in a lot of kind of global strategy work. And it was, um, I'd never done a role quite like it. It was next level transformation, um, <laughs> rebuilding an entire team, lifting capability, um, recasting a vision for kind of what marketing and product really looks like and how to most effectively leverage data. Um, I was leading a team when I left of 72. Um, Good golly. Yeah, and That's in my huge. first year I had to hire 46 people. So <gasps> it was right. a huge amount of change um, in a very, very rapid period. And we went from the lowest engagement score in the business to the highest uh, over 18. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, which was fantastic. And and we'd able, we'd been able to to kind of drive some of the key metrics that we needed to to help 
um, sustained programming in the field. So lots of great outcomes. I won't disclose, you know, detail, but lots of great outcomes and, and achievements in that role. Um, and I had been there for, for just shy of two years, but as I mentioned before, I had health issues and and so that kind of forced me to step down and then try and work out what am I going to do? <laughs> right, which leads us to Arctic Fox. So what made you think that you would go and and particularly do strategy? Because I think that's really interesting that you're not doing the implementation and it's more around the strategy and the training. So yeah. what made you think of that? So, uh, look, there is the market is flooded with providers and there are mm. lots of people that um, manage delivery. And I think it's very difficult to provide impartial advice and direction um, if you've got skin in the game on the delivery side. So if it's in my best interest to to gain, um, to, to, to get a retainer to deliver a whole lot of services, um, of course, then that means that I'm not necessarily going to be able to be impartial from a strategy point of view. Um, yeah, and, very true. And I think equally um, uh, what business leaders and, and marketing leaders need at the moment is partners that really understand some of their bigger challenges, not necessarily providers who who are able to support with campaign delivery because there's a lot of that out there. And, um, and that's why we play at more of a strategic level because we partner with with leaders on those challenges, you know, uh, on those bigger challenges. Um, and so when we talk strategy, usually it's through the lens of a business, a large or small business has a problem to solve and it's normally a market side problem. So we right. don't really come in and help businesses cost cut um, and and kind of re-engineer their, their back-end operations. That's not us. It's, it's more about kind of the markets changing and shifting and, how do we take advantage of the market um, and how do we remain relevant as a brand uh, and how do we, we effectively leverage um, things like or areas like e-commerce in order to drive growth for our business. So that's where we tend to spend a lot of our time, um, talking data strategy, marketing strategy, digital strategy, um, and then really around the skills you need to drive it. So it's not just about the strategy, it's about how do you set yourself up to make that change as a business um, or as a marketing team. Right. Wow. Really clever. I, what, what an amazing woman you are. That, that That's some <laughs> career. Um, all right. So now we're just going to get into some of the light fluffy stuff, which okay. I also enjoy. Now you mentioned that you had a great German woman that worked with you at Ford, was it? Or was yeah, it at Daimler Chrysler? Daimler Chrysler. Because, so what I was going to ask you is have there been any women that have made a significant um, impact on your career or helped mm. you in a way that you'd like to do a shout out? Because I don't think enough people do thank the women that have helped them along the way. So, are there, yeah, can you tell us a bit about two. them? Yeah, I'd say probably two. So, Christine Dietrich was her name. So, she right. was at the time, I think. When, when I was at Dame McCryzer and I'd started there, she was the marketing and communications manager and she really took me under her wing and was really focused on developing me and nurturing me and, and lifting me up, I would say. she wasn't That's one of just those, fantastic, isn't it? Yeah, she wasn't one of those women that were worried about 
kind of someone taking her job because eventually she was going back to Germany. Um, and right. I just don't think she was that way inclined anyway. She was very, very ambitious and went on to to lead, I think, global communications at Bosch. So very, very se- successful um, woman um, but and not kind of, um, uh, yeah, taking women on the journey with her. Um, so Isn't that great? I mean, that's what you would hope most women in big business would be like, really, to just lift up those younger women because, yeah. you know, it's to her benefit as well as everyone else's that, that you are skilled up as much as possible and given as many opportunities as you can be given. Absolutely. But if- the reality is, is you never stay in a role anyway. So it's not as if you're going to be in a role for five or ten years and, and as a leader you should be grooming your successor and and kind of thinking about who that person is whether that's a male or female and you know it, it, it's healthy to have people who want your role so um I, I I think that's a good thing not necessarily a bad thing um no well I mean I love it also that it was in the car industry that you had a, a fantastic woman boss mm-hmm. because you know um I imagine that if there was ever in any industry that it would be really hard to rise to the top it would mm-hmm. be cars mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, but, well, absolutely well I would say <laughs> I think you're right because it does tend to be quite male dominated but there's a number of industries that tend to be well, um, definitely not just automotive. Um, no, but it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the only other person I know who is a CMO is a woman from yeah. um, a big car company. And then um, last year, one of the She's the Boss girls is very heavily involved in F1 and mm. sort of very, very high-end cars called Madam Wheels. And uh, she did a series last year of the senior women in F1 and it was like almost all the F1 series is run by women which yeah. is isn't extraordinary yeah yeah you tend to see a lot of females in not-for-profit um right yes and, um, well I guess it's that kind of nurturing warm and fuzzy right. thing that you would imagine women would do well but um yeah it's interesting to me that automotive obviously embraces women you know reason mm. in in senior roles and mm. and isn't what it seems it would be on the outside mm. And then um, there's another one. Um, I think I've probably been quite fortunate as I've moved through. I've actually reported to a number of women. Um, in When I was in the UK, I reported to a female MD. Her name was Alex Farrell, and she was a big supporter and advocate of mine, so much so that she, because I was only on 12-month visa, at the time, right. and she wanted to um, sponsor me. And to sponsor me, I had to go home for seven weeks at the time because that was at a point where you had to leave and go back to your own country to apply for sponsorship. She allowed me to do that. And so I, that was how I was able to spend two years in, in London um, was because she drove that that desire to sponsor me. She said, even if you stay for nine months, I'll sponsor you. So she was fantastic. Um, and then when I came back at Real Estate View, I had another great female leader in Petrus Brekos and um, we still remain good friends now. Um, she's She works in a senior position for car sales. Uh, so, so, yeah, I think I've been really, really fortunate along my career to have a number of really strong female leaders. I mean, the CEO at World Vision as well, Claire Rogers, she was another strong female. Right, leader. right. So, so I would say probably at least half of my career I've, I've had been exposed to female leaders and and been fortunate in that way because a lot of a lot of women don't have those female role, role models. 
No, well, that's right. I mean, it's just so important for, well, it's part of the reason why I do this, just so that all the girls out there realise how many amazing women there are. (laughs) Um, Okay, now let's talk just specifically around Arctic Fox. Yes. Just in terms of, and I know you haven't been doing it for too long, but um, I often find that in business things that can seem like a catastrophe or things that are very challenging, Mm. you can look back on them and go, actually, in some ways, look, I wouldn't want to go through it again, but it did teach me something or moved my business in a different direction. Have you had any of those moments with Arctic Fox? Mm, it's an interesting one. Well, pandemic, I guess, is one <laughs> because that's yeah, when you well, go, what I, the hell are we going to do now? I just think the biggest thing that I've faced early on in developing the business was a, I was personally recovering from a loss. Um, uh you know, my, my health issue was was um, baby-related and right. so I was suffering from the loss of a child. Um, and Oh, my God, that makes it so hard. Yeah, and so you start a business at a time when you're grieving, so that's interesting. And then my mum at the same time was simultaneously hospital, hospitalised for a long period of time, over a year, and I think the hardest thing for me has been, and which I'd never want to do again, is actually trying to start a business when there is so many challenges happening for me personally. Um, the the headspace, it was a really challenging time um, and I'm surprised I've achieved what I've achieved in the time that I've been in business because when I look back at that period um, of the first 6 to 12 months, it's amazing that I kind of did anything. Um, yeah, yeah. And, or and, that you didn't just say, no, nah, this is all going to be too hard, I'll do it in another year or two, Yeah, uh, but you kept going. And Well, and the reality was I was the breadwinner of the family yeah. at the time, so my husband was in transition from selling a business and trying to work out what he wanted to do. So I kind of had to make it work in a way, and, um, but would I want to do it again? No way. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think we ever would. But you do kind of, you know, you can pat yourself on the back for having gritted your teeth and got through it all. So well done. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I think I think generally, you know, running a business, I would say it's really hard. It's one of the hardest things I've ever done. And <laughs> I don't think you realise, I mean, you talk about loneliness um, in senior positions and a lot of executives will talk about how they feel really lonely um, in their executive roles. But I would say when you don't have a business partner, um, particularly early on, it can be quite a lonely journey um, and that can be really challenging. Um, uh, and I think for some people that loneliness and lack of community becomes too much and yeah. they um, they exit. Um, so, yeah, I, I would say that probably has been a challenge that I've faced through the journey. Um, you know, yeah, no, I, I think that that's for, I think that, <laughs> That's very true. And I mean, that's part of the reason why, look, when I first set up She's the Boss, it was because I I missed being able to go out for a lunch at the end of the week Mm. and just talk with other people. But the one thing that I've learned, I guess, from from being in business is the power and the importance of having those networks of people that also own their own businesses, you know, people who understand what it is that you're going through and can support you a bit. But in the end, you are on your own. Yes. <laughs> There's no other way around it if it's your business, you know, unless you decide to bring a partner in, which which can work as well, but, you know, has its positives and negatives too. That's right. 
Okay, so you've got a young family and obviously um, other, you know, and, and thousands of cousins and all the rest of it. How do you <laughs> juggle your work and your life? For somebody who has worked in roles up until midnight, which I just find amazing, <laughs> uh, do you separate it now? Do you work sort of working hours and then when you're home, you're home, or is it all melting into the same pot? Yeah, it's an interesting one. When I was at work, one of the ways I, I used to kind of separate was I'd have no issue with working long hours during the week, but my weekends were my weekends and um, they are my time. So I'd be very good at going, I'm not working on the weekends. Right. I would say that with Arctic Fox, I'm trying to get back to that state. Um, it's taking me a little bit longer um, to get back there. I think COVID hasn't helped because you are, um, when you're at home and you've got nothing else to do, it's like I might just pop in and do that thing. Um, the other yeah. alternative is I go for another walk and I've already done two today. So, so I think, <laughs> you, you know, over COVID you, you develop some bad habits and because we were home for, what, five months last year, mm-hmm. um, I would say that, you know, there was a point where I was probably working six and a half days a week. Right. Um, I think I've got it down to a manageable level. Uh, and I'm starting even during the week to get pockets of personal time to get things done. And that may mean that if I am working overtime or on the weekend, it's kind of balancing out because I'm getting those other things. Yeah. Um, whether it's, you know, kind of going out and exercising or whatever. Um, so I definitely have more life balance this year. And I, I think it's more about you have to be conscious of it and you have to be deliberate in how you're managing it. Um, and and you have to keep practicing it every day and every week because it's very easy to get the better of you, right? And just continue to work yourself into the ground um, uh, as mothers tend to do. Yes, yes. Well, there's a lot that we have to juggle. You know, it's just suddenly occurred to me. Why did you call it an Arctic fox? What's that? What? Does, um, where did that come from? Yeah. Okay. So uh, I wanted. Um, I wanted something that represented change and evolution because yeah. that's what transformation is all about. And so, I mean, obviously everyone knows of the chameleon, but um, very cliche. So I went searching for animals that change based on oh. their surrounds or environment. And if you look at the Arctic fox, fascinating creature, uh, very small and tenacious, and I felt like that kind of, sums me up a little bit um, and so physically um, probably sums me up. But equally um, uh, it changes its uh, physical appearance based on the time of year. So in the summer it sheds its coat, it's brown and grey to camouflage and then in right. winter it's got a white coat again to camouflage with the snow. Um, I never knew that. Yeah, and it's Amazing. also had to adapt um based on climate change. So historically it was hunted by the polar bear in certain parts of the world. It's actually befriended the polar bear to help it hunt for food. So it's just a really fascinating animal. And I thought Ah. it encapsulates what it is that we do really well. Really well, yeah. 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 So it was the first name I came up with and it's the one that I, I stuck with. Well, I love it. Um, and I never knew that, but it makes enormous sense. Okay, now here comes the really silly question okay. that I ask everyone and there's no right answer and, you you know, there, there may not be anything, but is there a quirky fact that most people don't know about you that you'd be up for sharing? Quirky fact. 
I've had all sorts of extraordinary things from, oh, yes, I can play harpsichord to I was a synchronized swimming champion to I was the first person on Graham Norton's red chair. And one person doesn't have a belly button, so, you know. I was on The Price is Right. (laughs) You were? The Price is Right, and I got called up. Oh, my God. Did you win money? So, no, I I was so excited that I got called up, and it was all so surreal. But I didn't listen to what the product was. And so <laughs> I guess was so completely out of the ballpark. Um, it was like the skincare range and there was probably 20 or 30 products and I guess $280. It was like $780. Oh. Um, so I didn't. Um, but I you did it and you've been it. called up on the prices, right? That's pretty good. Was that with Ian Turpy? It must have been. I don't know. I can't remember. <laughs> it was a while ago. It was like early, early 2000s. So um, yeah, so that's probably my my close enough um, claim to fame. Wow. Well, I love it. Okay, last but not least, and this yes. is only because I love my own phone, um, are there? Uh, do you use your phone for business at all? And if so, have you got any clever apps you can share with us? Uh, I do use my phone for business. I use my phone way too much. Um, yeah, so do I. So I don't have clever apps for business, but I can provide some clever tools that I use generally. Yeah, go on. Um, for business. So um, I don't have any kind of just thinking about there's no amazing apps that I use that I, I'm like, you have to use this. Um, we are using a tool called Nero, which helps you to run virtual brainstorm sessions. Um, and so what did you say? It's Miro as in the artist, M-I-R-O? M-I-R-O, yeah. Okay. And what it allows you to do is effectively when you're in a a physical workshop, you're often using a lot of sticky notes and kind of um, brainstorming and it effectively allows you to do that virtually. It's a really great tool. Yeah, it's a really, really good tool. Um, Oh, I'll have to look that one up. And so I would highly recommend it. Um, That's definitely because we do a lot of kind of virtual workshops with our clients, um, yeah, and we've found that to be a really effective tool. How does it work? Out. I don't quite understand how it does sticky notes. Well, you build a board, you build a virtual kind of whiteboard, and then based on the oh. topics that you're brainstorming, you can start to bring to life sticky notes around themes, and you can categorize them and group them together. And oh wow! So, yeah. but it's more one that you do on your laptop than your phone, is it? Yeah, it's definitely. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, you could probably use it on your phone. I don't know, but we. We tend to use it because a lot of our workshops we're running via our laptops. We yep. tend to use it in that form. So yeah, great. Have an app, but um, we're not using it for that. Clever. That yeah. Got another one? Uh, no, outside of that, it's probably a lot more of the stock standard ones, right? Um, yeah. Subscriptions to Canva and all those types of things. So nothing else that's kind of um, revolutionary. But Miro, bit- we've started using over the past couple of months. Um, and I think that's um, really allowed us. It's to, been a revelation. Yeah. And what about engaging? Yep. What about do you play on your phone as well? Do you do have games? Yeah, yeah. Do you have games and do anything um, that's silly, like words with friends or Candy Crush I or anything used to like that? Words with friends. Um, <laughs> and that was that was definitely a lockdown game. And um, I had a girlfriend and her husband. And I would go up against both of them in, in separate games. Um, but probably after six months, um, we gave that away. Up. Candy Crush I used to love when I when I just had my son. Um, right. But, um, 
yeah, I, I, to be honest, I, I spend most of my time when I'm not working, <laughs> um, listening to podcasts and right. a lot of true crime podcasts. Ah, true crime lover, eh? Yes, I'm a true crime lover. Yes. Ah. Yes. Okay. Well, look, Teresa, I don't know how to thank you. This has been a great interview. I have loved your story. What an interesting woman you are. <laughs> um, if anybody wants to get hold of you or Arctic uh, Fox, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah. So definitely feel free to connect with me via LinkedIn. Um, my last name S P E R T I. Teresa. And then um, if you want to connect via um, Arctic Fox, send me an email at Teresa at ArcticFox.io. Arctic mm-hmm. Fox is with a K, so A-R-K-T-I-C. Brilliant. Well, I'm sure that there will be people getting in touch with you because I love what you're doing and it's so needed. And I think the the idea of doing that high-level strategy as opposed to the implementation really makes you stand out. Mm, yeah, great. So thank you. Thank you, Jules. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of She's the Boss Chats. For more information and to find out about our other initiatives, including our weekly lunch for female founders and our TV show, go to she'stheboss.com.au.